Well, for those of you who um, were not here uh, last week or you had forgotten from last week, uh, we are now two weeks into a um, five-week study where we're going to be going over the five solas of the Reformation. And again, the solas is Latin for alone. And so, in short, what we had, or what we have, are five doctrines or beliefs that shaped uh, what the Reformation was, what the Reformation believed, and how they were trying to reform initially, reform and change. But ultimately, um, when when they left the Catholic Church, what were then stakes in the ground that were immovable truths of God. And so last week we looked at uh, at sola scriptura or scripture alone and how it is the foundation, it is the bedrock upon which everything else is built. Now, I had thought that if we had given a rousing lesson on, on uh, scripture alone and had a table full of free Bibles in the back, everyone would flock to these Bibles and pick them up. The flocking didn't happen. So, after the lesson today, if you would like to flock, um, just to let you know where these Bibles come from in the back, these actually were from Dexter and Jesse's house. And once they moved to Uganda, there was a a box of Bibles that were left, and they are great if you know someone who wants a good translation or could use, maybe they don't know that they want one, but they could use a good translation of God's Word. Grab one or three or five of um, the ESVs that we have on the back and, and, and give them, share them, uh, spread them around. So, Today, I want to introduce you to someone very briefly named Desiderius, if I pronounce that correctly, Desiderius Erasmus. So back around 500, he was the foremost public intellectual of the day and literally the most educated man on the planet of his time. He was an open, open critic but a devout follower of the Catholic Church. He was liberal. He was a humanist. Today's terms, he was a liberal. I also want to introduce you to someone else you may have heard of. His name is Martin Luther. So he's probably, at the same time, the most infamous man in all of Europe. He, at this point, was dedicating his life to exposing the heresies of the Catholic Church and correcting them and trying to set the people free by exposing them to the Word of God. One of the things, I'm going to give you another free one. Erasmus was the first person, and this was a scholarly thing that he did because he was an intellectual, he was the first person to compile a Greek New Testament text. So he got different manuscripts, and there were just a couple at that time, but he put together the first Greek New Testament. Um, The Pope, Pope Adrian, actually requested of Erasmus that Erasmus would write 
to attack Luther and what Luther was doing within Europe. Incidentally, ha ha ha, it was Erasmus's Greek New Testament that Luther translated into the German language when he was hiding and ended up within just a few years had over half a million German, German translations of the Bible in the hands of the everyday people. So Erasmus, um, yeah, it, it, it was uh, God used him in his work uh, to further the work of what Luther was doing. So the Pope asks Erasmus, I want you to write and take down Luther and his doctrine. So what would you think the very first doctrine out of everything that Luther was writing and disagreeing with the Catholic Church, what do you think the first doctrine that Erasmus attacked, what do you think it was? Any ideas? Ah, <laughs> good. Yeah, so here's what's interesting. It wasn't on his attack of the indulgences. It wasn't um, the icons or even let's tear apart his justification. It was on the free will of man. That's not what I would have done if I was in Erasmus's shoes. Luther, he rejected the position that Erasmus held that there was a freedom or a free will in fallen man. Luther rejected that fallen men were able to choose to do good and to worship God. Erasmus, what he did in 1524 was he actually wrote a piece called A Discourse of Free Will. And this was an attack directly at Luther. It wasn't just a broad theological or intellectual thing. It was an attack on Luther's position of the free will of man. And he defended the ability of a fallen man, even in his sinful state, that this man did have the ability to will or to choose God. And this book right here, The Bondage of the Will, if you notice, this is a recent publication. Luther responded with a book, The Bondage of the Will, which was a point-by-point breaking apart of Erasmus's argument, and this book is still in publication today. You can go and get one that is just very recently printed. For over 500 years, it has stood the test of time. What Luther's response turned into was a battle between Erasmus and Luther. They, it grew to where there was actually just vehement animosity between the two. So why do you think Erasmus actually chose to attack the free will of man? What was this battling back and forth about? And, and it was so intense. There's one, there's one person who, who said that at this time, in the morning they would wake up, one of them, of these two men, one would grab a rapier and the other one a blunderbuss, which think like a pirate's gun. That these men, they would wake up in the morning ready to attack each other. What is it that led to this amount of animosity? It was 
that the man's free will or man's will in bondage, one of those two are going to absolutely impact your view of the gospel. Whether or not man has a free will to choose God will impact the heart of the way you view salvation. And therefore, it's the, it is the heart of the Reformation. The doctrine of free will, this is what was being countered to grace alone. Grace alone, it's not even so much grace versus works. Works, that's really what faith alone, next week, faith alone is really going to attack the, the works issue in salvation. What grace alone, if you were to even say it, God's sovereign grace alone. This is the understanding that man, apart from the sovereign grace of God, not only will never, but can never choose God. Grace alone is not just saying it's salvation by grace, but not by works. What it is saying is the sovereign grace of God alone is what leads us to salvation. There were, this is actually something that Luther himself stated in this book, and actually towards the end of the book. I want to read you a quote from it. He says, to Erasmus, he says, I praise and commend you highly for this also, that unlike all the rest, you alone have attacked the real issue, the essence of the matter in dispute. Luther recognized that the difference between man's free will or, man's, or God's sovereign grace was the key issue that undergirded the rest of the gospel message. We cling as our church to sovereign grace alone because sovereign grace is the gospel. Steve Lawson, one of the great preachers of our day, he says, salvation is all grace. There is no part of the gospel that is not marked by grace. Martin Luther, Steve Lawson, they both proclaim grace is the gospel. And if you would turn to Ephesians 2, what I'm going to show you today is from the passage of Ephesians 2, why these men and many before us today have held to the sovereign grace of God alone. So if you would go ahead and let's bow our head in prayer and then we're going to jump in. Our God and Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart just this morning so that we can even see more accurately and more clearly your sovereign grace in salvation. We pray that we would cling to you and cling to grace alone. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.
So my goal for our time here in Ephesians 2 is to answer the question, why do we cling to grace alone? Why do we cling to sovereign grace alone? And the answer to that question is that salvation is all about God's sovereign grace. And we're going to see that in the first nine verses of Ephesians 2, we're going to see that salvation is all about God's sovereign grace, that it is the sovereign grace is God's motivation in salvation. That is what motivates God. That sovereign grace is God's means of salvation. And ultimately, you're going to see that God's sovereign grace, or sovereign grace is God's monument that he is, is building and has built in salvation. And so if you would, let's go ahead and read these first nine verses, starting verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may know. So let me get a definition of this. If you look at the bottom of your sheet, you'll see that. You could use the acronym G-R-A-C-E. Very simple, but it's God, God's riches. God's riches at Christ's expense. And Steve Lawson actually um, defines it as grace is the compassionate response of a superior to an inferior. This is what we're talking about when we mention grace. So let's look, first of all, at the very first point that salvation is all about God's sovereign grace. And the first thing we see in Ephesians chapter 2 is that sovereign grace is God's motivation in salvation. In verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. Let me give you an illustration. We've all seen this type of reporting on the news where there's a war zone and maybe a young child is cuddled next to the lifeless body of a young lady crying, clinging to this, this body. What makes this so sad is what the child needs, what the child longs for, what the child is desiring is the very thing that his mother can no longer provide for him. She is dead 
And this is gut-wrenching because she cannot give the child what he so very longs for. She is dead, incapable of anything. You were dead. You were dead, incapable of anything. But notice, it's not just that you were dead. It was you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Deliberate, conscious rebellion against God. One theologian says that the trespasses and sins express a conscious and a willful, decisive act against God's holiness and righteousness, and thus a failure to live as one should. Human beings are responsible for these acts of treachery against God. The trespasses and sins in which you were dead are acts of treachery against God. But notice the relationship that Paul gives between death and the trespasses and sins. It says you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So grammatically, this word in could actually be translated a couple different ways. It could be because of the trespasses and sins, or it could be by the trespasses and sins. And, but the problem is both of those two translations would actually have the meaning that the trespasses and sins are the instruments by which you were dead. Just like a gun might be an instrument of your death if someone were to shoot you, the gun is not the one who actually was the act that caused you to die. It would be the person who wielded that. And in the same way, that's why we actually have it translated the third possible way, which is in, in your trespasses and sins. And this interpretation is correct. And this is why I think each one of your Bibles are going to say that rather than by or because of your trespasses and sins, you were in your trespasses and sins. You were in them dead. Being dead in the trespasses means that it was the sphere in which you were. You were dead within the sphere of your trespasses and sins. You were dead while in the realm of being in the trespasses and sins. You were within the realm of willful acts of treachery against God. While you were in this realm you were dead. And we can actually find other passages, Colossians 2.13 is one of them, that actually show us that this is the best understanding. In Colossians 2.13, it says, And you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So, very similar idea. You were dead in your trespasses, but also in your circumcision of the flesh. And what this is talking about is your physical circumcision, while you were living as a Gentile, you were living in the uncircumcision of your flesh. You weren't living because you were uncircumcised. You, you, you weren't living because of the, um, or I'm sorry, you weren't dead because of the fact that you were a Gentile. That Gentile was the realm in which you were, just like the trespasses is the realm within which you were. 
So in both of these passages, both in Colossians and in Ephesians 2, it says, while you were in the realm of your trespasses and sins, you were dead. You were dead, unable to act, unable to move, unable to speak apart from your deadness. You were dead while living in that realm of willful rebellion against God. This is who you were. This is where you were. This is where you lived. The entirety of your life was living within the realm of the trespasses and sins. Today, we live within a physical realm. We cannot do anything that takes us out of our physical realm. We can't meditate. We can't, I don't even know if this would be a thing, but like transition our spirit or we can't do some type of a metaphysical thing that takes us away from this physical realm. This is where we are. And in the same way, prior to Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you look at Romans 3, this is a passage you're probably familiar with, but this is how Paul describes to the epistle, to uh, uh, to the Romans, he describes this same condition. Starting verse 9, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together all have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is describing those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. All All unbelievers exist in the realm of rebellion against God. All are dead there, unable to live or operate in any other way. This is who they are. This is what they do. This is who we were. This is what we did. And Ephesians 2, 2 actually continues on, and Paul describes a little bit more deeply, this is what it looks like while you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Look in verse 2, it says, In which, in this realm, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The the trespasses and sins you were dead in were what you walked in. This is the way you lived your life. And this is where every one of us were But if you are in Christ, it is no more. It says, once, this is past tense, once you walked in, we lived our lives there. We lived according to that realm. The daily activity of our life was living in this state of sin. 
And what did this daily walking look like? We were following the course of this world. Literally, the, the course of this world is the age or this ongoing era or this period of this world. We were walking according to the age in which we now live. The age that is broken, the, bra- the age that is fallen, it is corrupted by sin, it is ruled by sin and death. And it was in line with this age that you once walked. And if you look at Ephesians 5, if you flip over just a couple pages, we actually see in verse 15 and 16, it talks another, just another perspective to show what this age is like. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. The age in which we now live is evil. The age of this world is evil. The course of this world is evil. And you once followed after it. Now, quick application, a side note. If we know that this age is evil, we also know that there is an age that is coming after this. And so this right now, where we live, it is just an age. This is not the end. A new one is coming that we can look forward to with hope and joy. So remember that. But right now, the age in which we live is evil. And how evil is it? Keep reading. It says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan himself is directing and working in this age. Where it says the prince, the prince of the power of this air, this is actually sometimes translated as ruler or commander, captain, chief, king, or Lord, and in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use this word to talk about the rulers or chiefs or kings of Edom, of Moab, of Issachar, of Zebulun, and even of King David. This is the word that this is talking about. Satan is the authority, the king, the ruler of this world, of this age of sin. Not this physical world, but this age of fallenness. And we can remember, just on a side note, in Romans 13, speaking of our government authorities, referring uh, to the government authorities, we're told that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so we know that this is true of the government, but we also see this, see this same reality in Job, where Job, within Job's um, narrative that we're told, Satan, who is working in Job's life, is only working underneath 
the authority or the permission of God. And so we need to remember this as well, that even though Satan is underneath God's authority right now in this age or realm of transgression and sin, Satan is the prince. He is the ruler. And the course of this world that is following, that we are following, is one in which as the lost as lost prior to our, to our salvation, we were following this prince. One, one uh, commentator said, the course of this world is used to describe the created material world, and we see that in Ephesians 1.4, but it can also refer to the ethical world, which is the satanically organized system that hates and opposes all that is godly. So the course of this world could be seen as the system of ethics that is opposed to God and all that he represents. And we see this from Christ's own words. In John 15, he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And In chapter 18, he says, my kingdom is not of this world, this system of ethics. You once were dead following after this satanically organized and ruled world. The system is opposed to God, opposed to Christ, opposed to righteousness. This system is for or in support of sinfulness and rebellion against God. And you were following after this system and the ruler. The ruler is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All who are in this world are operating and walking in the ways of this world. And just like Christ said of the Pharisees, he said, you are of, the father, of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So are the sons of disobedience. They are following after the ruler of this, wor- this world, and their will is to do the will of their father, the devil, just like the Pharisees. And look how both you and I and all of mankind were operating while we were following after the course of this world. It says, among whom, these sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice two things that we once were. We lived in passions, carrying out the desires, and we were by nature children of wrath. It's what we did. It's how we lived. But it's also who we were. We were, by nature, children of wrath. 
Now, within this passage, we have two different words that are similar. We have sons in verse 2, and then we have children in verse 3. But both of these two words, they really have a different understanding and a different nuance. Children is going to be different from sons in that sons had this implication of dignity, of personal choice. Think of a 17 or 18-year-old young man in our culture. They're about to be adults. They're not quite there, but they still have that dignity of personal choice. And in many many ways, they're operating of their own decisions and reaping their own consequences. Those, Those are who the sons are. The children denotes a close, dependent relationship with a parent. The child would never survive on their own. But they are nurtured daily and cared for daily by the parent. The sons of disobedience, understanding this, in verse 2, by his own choice, disobeys God. The child of wrath is utterly dependent and incapable of escaping from the wrath of God and the life that leads to God's wrath. By nature, you were a child of wrath, utterly dependent, unable to escape the life that was leading to the wrath of God upon you. It was your DNA. It was the quality of your existence. It's who you were. And so Ephesians 2, in these first three verses, it explains that you were a son of disobedience who chose rebellion against God. But it also shows you were a child of wrath who really had no choice but to be who your nature was. This is why Martin Luther held so staunchly to the complete and total depravity of man's will. And this is why Luther put his finger on Erasmus' attack on man's utter sinfulness and said, you alone have attacked the real issue, the essence of the matter in in this dispute. Those who are lost simultaneously choose rebellion against God, but at the same time have no ability to not choose rebellion against God. It is their very nature. And if you are a believer here today, this is who you once were. What is the only response that God can have against the sons of disobedience and the children of wrath. The only response that could be expected would be the righteous wrath and judgment poured out upon us and consuming us. But God... Jason, finish this for me, brother. (laughs) 
in contrast to the condition of verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3, God's character is displayed, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and that's almost an identical phrase to how he started, he's, that's what he's referring back to. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and all of those truths that I've just written to you about, those are all true. Even then, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Who God is, is rich in mercy. Mercy, and going back to the Septuagint, that Greek translation, this is great. Over 700 times, there's a word used in the Old Testament, and that is translated over 400 times with this same word that we have mercy translated as. It's hesed. The steadfast love of God. We know Lamentations 3 that the steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon says, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below, keeping a covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all of their heart. Yahweh shows the steadfast love, the mercy to those who walk after them with all of their hearts. But in verse 4, Yahweh is rich in steadfast love, rich in mercy to those who walk after the course of this world. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. God is rich in mercy. God loved us with a great love even when we were in this realm of trespasses and sins. It was God. This has nothing to do with you who were by nature. This is God. This is having nothing to do with what you have done. But God because of his mercy, his covenantal love, but God, because of his great love with which he loved the unlovable, the unlovely, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is grace. Deserving the wrath of God 
dead in our trespasses and sins, choosing a life of rebellion as sons of disobedience, unable to choose anything but rebellion as children of wrath, he made, it, made us alive by grace you have been saved. This is why the reformers clung to God's sovereign grace alone. This is God's motivation in salvation. There are no indulgences you can pay to the church to have your sins forgiven. There are no relics that you can visit and kiss to have extra grace given onto you. There is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that we can deserve. There's nothing we desire. But God's sovereign grace alone is his motivation in salvation. And it's through our union with Christ. We were raised up with Christ. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And Romans 6 there's a few messages that Dan has. Look them up. That is all about our union with Christ. The grace comes because of our union with Christ. But for time's sake, we're just going to look at God's grace upon grace. Salvation is all about God's sovereign grace. It is his motivation but also, if you look in verse 8, it is the means of salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one be, may boast. It is by grace. And actually, when you look at the grammar of this in, in the Greek, it's very clear that this grace is the grace that he has referred back to a few verses earlier. The, the, what we see in verse 5, this grace by which we have been made alive is the same grace that we have been saved by. Where I saved you because of my steadfast love, my covenantal mercy, where I saved you in spite of who you are and what you deserved, by this grace you have been saved. Salvation is all about God's sovereign grace. You have in verses 1 through 6 the fact that this is who we were and what we deserved, but then in verse 8, the same grace, by the same grace, God saved you by his sovereign grace alone. You still didn't earn it and deserve it or contribute to it. It is still by God. It is still based on who he is. Notice though, how did God accomplish this salvation? By his sovereign grace? It is through faith. Faith was the instrument through which his sovereign grace worked. If you were to be traveling and you were on the grace train, the tunnel that the grace train carries you through would be the tunnel of faith to get you to the station of salvation. Yeah, that's some alliteration there. That station of salvation. <laughs> yeah, you have the grace of God carrying you 
the faith is the means through which he gets you to the point of salvation. And to make this more clear, that the sovereign grace of God is from God, Paul clarifies what the sovereign grace is not. It says, and namely it's your works, it says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Now, here's one of the points that we want to look at. And if you don't love grammar, I'm about to change your heart. (laughs) And this, this, some argue that this refers to grace. The grace is not your own doing, but the faith is. Some will argue that, that it's talking about the faith, that this, the faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. The problem is, is there's rules that Greek grammar follows. And it's clear and evident because in the Greek, the this... In English, we don't have feminine and masculine like we do in some other languages. But the this must be the same tense as the object that it's pointing back, or not, not tense, I'm sorry, gender, that the object that it's pointing back to. Which means if this is referring to the grace, they're going to be the same gender. If this is referring to the faith, they're going to be the same gender. Grace is female, Faith is female, but the gender is neutered, meaning it's not male, masculine or feminine, which means this is talking about everything that I have talked about. This salvation that is by the grace of God, all of this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not just the grace that's from God. It's not just the faith that's from God. It's the salvation by God's sovereign grace through faith. This is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is referring back to the whole thing. If any of this was your own doing, it would immediately contradict what he has just said. If this was not a gift of God, everything that he is just talking about would again be contradicted. The reason we cling so tightly, and get this, to the sovereign grace of God alone is because of the gender of this in Ephesians 2.8. This salvation is not from you. It is the gift of God. Salvation is all about God's sovereign grace. The entirety is all about sovereign grace. Sovereign grace is God's motivation in saving us. Sovereign grace is God's means for salvation. But I now want to show you my favorite point in this passage. We're going to see that sovereign grace is God's monument in salvation. 
Go back to verse 7. How many noticed I skipped over verse 7? Anybody? (laughs) We're going back there. I'm going to look at verse 5 and get that running start. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that, in order that, there is a reason why God has saved you by his grace. And nowhere else in this passage are we told what God's ultimate purpose in saving us was. We see that it's based on his mercy, his steadfast love. We see that it's based upon the love which with, with which he loved us. These are motivations, but it's not the purpose. Verse 7 gives us the only purpose that this passage provides as to why God saved you by his grace. Why did God save you? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. One commentator said, the reason God has quickened and raised and seated the believers together with Christ is that he might demonstrate his grace in the coming ages. God's design by our salvation was to build a monument that would stand outside of time, not just while this this earth remains, but in the coming ages, it will stand for eternity. It will stand. Your salvation, which is by grace and for grace is to be an eternal monument of God's immeasurable riches of grace. Your salvation is a cosmic monument of God's sovereign grace. Immeasurably rich grace. In the ages to come, the angelic realm will look upon all who have been saved. Each one of us who were rebellious by choice, wretched objects of wrath by nature, and they will say, and all of us who formerly were those wretches will say, behold, the immeasurable riches of God's grace like the prodigal son of verse 15. Then our Father, our Heavenly Father will say, for these my children were dead and are alive. They were lost and are found and all will begin to celebrate 
And it will be fitting to celebrate and be glad. For you all were dead and are alive. You were lost and are found. This salvation, this salvation is all about God's sovereign grace. Sovereign grace is God's motivation in saving us. Sovereign grace is his means of saving us. And by God's grace, sovereign grace is God's monument in salvation. This is why we cling to sovereign grace alone. Do you believe that God provided salvation by his sovereign grace alone? Do you believe that you can do anything to curry any favor before God? If you do, it is thinking little and spitting upon God's sovereign grace alone? Do you believe in your heart that even in a small way, even today, your salvation or your standing before God is based upon what you do? Or that salvation is out of reach because of who you are or what you have done? If you believe it's out of reach because of what you have done, you don't understand the sovereign grace of God. Brothers and sisters, cling to that which God has determined to be the eternal monument before all ages. Cling to sovereign grace alone. Listen to how God refers to and calls himself in Exodus 34. Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Bow your head before the sovereign grace of Yahweh and worship. Cling to sovereign grace alone. Let's pray. Our Father, I have no words to express who you are 
or what you have done. We praise you and thank you for the gift of your sovereign grace. Amen.